Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these moments that we can share in your presence. Lord, let us always be mindful of the price that was paid to purchase this morning for us and every morning we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. No less than the shed blood of God's only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, was the purchasing power for the meaning of our communion, our fellowship, and our time of meditation, praise, and declaration of Your Word, and our Lord, fellowship in You. Only You, Jesus, are responsible because of the price that You paid for the meaning and the worth of this gathering here this morning. And so we exalt You. I pray as these songs have lifted You up and sought to magnify Your name and Your attributes in our heart and in our soul, I pray that Your Word, which does the same, Lord, as it's proclaimed in our hearing today, might draw our attention to the authority, the grandeur, the mercy, the grace, the power, the truth, the justice, and the all-sufficient glory of the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ today. As we immerse ourselves, Lord, in what You have written down for us to behold, I pray that these words would be written not just in our consciousness, not in a fleeting memory, but on the tables of our hearts, that it might produce fruit as seed planted on fertile soil that would benefit and grow your kingdom, that we might be transformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be equipped to bring the life-transforming message of the gospel to whoever you would bring us to. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a gracious gift this morning is for us to spend time in His Word. In just a moment, I'll ask you to stand. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, in a moment we'll stand if you're able and read God's Word together this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 21. Today's message is entitled, Progressive recognition, progressive recognition, recognizing Jesus Christ by greater degree as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. So stand with me now if you would, with your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 16. We'll read together. Follow me as I read verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
In verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. The aim for this message this morning is to chronicle the testimony of the witnesses of Jesus' word and works in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been systematically working through Matthew's Gospel, and we've come, as it occurs to me this week, about dead center in our study. We're at the end of Matthew chapter 14, about to turn the page to 15, and I wanted to fast forward a bit to Matthew 16 to give you that moment in the Gospel where Jesus Christ, through the words of His servant Peter, is perhaps most clearly identified at least pre-resurrection and ascension and pre-visitation of the Holy Spirit on the disciples, where the fullness of revelation struck them in such a way that they would almost, to a man, have the kind of faith that would lead them to die for Jesus Christ. And you don't find in the record, following the visitation of the Holy Spirit, the same waffling and fickle behavior, the same faithlessness and the same tendency to doubt or even to portray their master in a way that would deny him. Yet through the course of this gospel, there have been moments and windows like the one we just read where those who are following Christ's ministry as his disciples or witnessing his word and his works as he heals and feeds the thousands and as he declares the word of the Lord, there are these windows that we see of attestation where people declare something of the Messiah. There's a progressive recognition, if you will, a recognizing by incremental degree in the witnesses as to Jesus' nature, ministry, who He is, and what His works must mean. So today, as we reach the center of Matthew's Gospel, I thought we would go and do a brief overview to bring us up to date on six examples of these times in the gospel when people declare something of Christ. So six brief points for you this morning, beginning with S, and here's a heading for you. At the central point of Matthew's gospel, Christ has been recognized as the following. Number one, superior in religious authority. Number two, he's been recognized as sovereign over creation. Number three, as savior of the soul. Number four, as singular in history. Number five, as son of David. And number six, as the son of God. And that son of God references right dead center in the book of Matthew after Christ has walked across the sea and they have re-entered and Peter and has re-entered the boat. The storm has ceased, the wind has died down and we find the disciples worshiping and confessing of Jesus Christ, truly you are the Son of God. But prior to that moment, there have been windows and opportunities for people to see and to witness something of Christ's work and ministry, and it's interesting to see how they build on one another. Our last message when we were in Matthew dealt with the concept of Exodus echoes. That is, in Matthew chapter 14, Not only do we get this powerful declaration from the testimony of the disciples as to the nature of Jesus Christ as indeed the Son of God, but we also get echoes of Old Covenant language pictured 
in the events before us. We see a calming of the sea and a safe passage provided God's covenant people, His disciples, from one side of the sea to Gennesaret, which means a place of blessing or the paradise of Galilee on the other side. Echoing back to the language of redemption of old where God and His outstretched arm and His loving kindness parted the Red Sea and brought His covenant people safely to the other side. And as we see the dawning revelation in the eyes and ears and to the consciousness of the onlookers, we find that the Old Testament is informing them. This must be the prophet that was spoken of old. Perhaps this is someone like Elijah or Jeremiah that was spoken. Could this be the son of David? Is this indeed the Messiah? In our record in Matthew 14, We discovered last week in the specifics of the event, there is striking correspondence and similarity to events in the Exodus. Even right down to, I forgot to mention this detail when we were here last time, but in verse 25 it says, And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. That's a direct allusion to Exodus 14, 24, where it says in the morning watch, which translates to Roughly the, ex- roughly the same hours of the night, from perhaps 2 or 3 in the morning to 6 in the morning, at that time in Exodus, when the seas collapsed and God's people were brought safely on the other side, and the seas collapsed on their enemies. But in the case here, where Jesus walks across the surface of the water to calm the seas, when the disciples are in a plight and in a catastrophe or a dangerous situation of their own. But both in the particulars and in the larger picture, we see Exodus echoes throughout this passage and throughout this gospel. So I wanted to highlight that as well. Whereas our last message focused on Exodus echoes in the particular events of Matthew 14, right down to the details like the one I just mentioned, this message this morning takes a few steps back by way of overview to point a few things out that we might learn generally, discovering the identity of Jesus dawning on the followers of Christ incrementally through His life and ministry. And in this little bigger picture from Matthew chapter 1 to 14 and then at that culminating verse that we read at the introduction in, verse, in uh, chapter 16, indeed, echoes of Exodus resound in this broader historical situation as well. When Jesus reveals Himself To those who are looking in on his ministry, it is a strategic positioning of events in the timeline of Jewish history that are absolutely stunning. And there is a shocking realization of the significance, the intricacy, the beauty, the fulfilled prophecy, the power, the glory, and the divine and sovereign writing of the narrative of redemption, this shocking realization that is dawning on these witnesses little by little, and it's thoroughly documented in this gospel. One of the reasons I think that it's in shades and a bit at a time is simply for the reason that if you were to sit someone down with Jesus, having been introduced to him in his ministry as a Jew in this century here for the very first time, and if Jesus would lay out for you clearly, emphatically, in simple language, everything that he was and was called to do, you would probably keel over backward and simply faint. It is overwhelming. It is simply incredible 
the amount of information and the power of the truth that is displayed and that is conveyed through the gospel as to who Jesus is. It takes a lot of words, a lot of events, miracles, proclamations, sermons, and an unfolding of circumstances in sequence to draw the believers to the point of realizing as these things stack up, oh my word, this is incredible. Not only is this man a deliverer from an occupier Rome, but he is a deliverer of the transgression of the very soul. Not only is this man's birth and life spectacular, but he indeed is attended by signs that we could have never imagined. The dead are being raised to life. The thousands are being fed. The word is being preached on the authority of a man who does not echo the scribes, but speaks directly as a conduit of revelation, God to man himself, the mediator. And so as we take in the Gospels, as we contemplate how Jesus revealed himself and how step by step this progressive recognition of Christ is awakened before our eyes as we read, I would call my attention and your attention to take it in to saturate and marinate on the Gospels, to meditate on the reality and the power therein contained. And if we have been in danger of saying something like, oh, I know that, I've known that for a long time, or treating it in a relatively cavalier fashion, oh, the message of Jesus, I've heard it since I was a child. I tune into Christian radio, and I've just about memorized it by now. I got the four spiritual laws down pat. I've memorized my favorite collection of verses. I've pretty much arrived at an understanding and appreciation of what Christ is to me. I would challenge you, never let yourself be resolved to reach a plateau of a certain knowledge and assent and a certain value of what Christ is and stop there. Because the information worth gleaning from the Gospels is indeed indefinite, indeed infinite. And consequently and proportionally, the value, the affections and the love we ought to have For Jesus Christ, a life cannot contain a faithfulness to that gospel well lived. Emotions, as the human being can feel them, are not sufficient to engender within us the kind of excitement, zeal, joy, love, commitment that the gospel of Jesus Christ demands and commands. And so it is that we have eternal life and necessarily so. Because the glory that Christ deserved, it's impossible for a finite creature to offer in simply a few years, decades on this planet. And so this morning, I hope as we march through the gospel and recognize some of these shocking and amazing moments, that it might inspire within us a deeper appetite and a deeper devotion to the meaning of who Jesus Christ is. And so the heading again at the central point of Matthew's gospel, Christ to this time at this time, has been recognized as first superior in religious authority. Turn back with me to Matthew 7, the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. And recall with me, not just the message that was spoken as we've gone over in some detail, but I want to remind you of the impression that this sermon made on its original hearers. As Jesus finishes up His words in Matthew seven twenty four through 27 by saying, 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had, it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And even as these words, this proclamation summarized in parable from Jesus' own lips falls on the ears of the hearers, we have recorded in the next two verses their response. 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. After Jesus had proclaimed the message of the kingdom as given to us in chapters 5-7 through of Matthew's Gospel, it's as if a circumstance is painted for us in the narrative where you could hear a pin drop. Where for a moment, as I imagine, perhaps many moments, a hush falls on the crowd. They are taking in the weight of what has just been spoken and it is unprecedented in their ears. They have no correlation in their experience for this kind of authority, for this kind of truth, for this kind of weighty proclamation, proposition, this kind of messianic self-disclosure. And as they begin and turn and look at one another, you can see written on their faces in your mind's eye the question that each know they're asking without even saying it. Did you hear what I just heard? What could this mean? Could we dare to imagine that we are living in the very moment where the God of history intervenes in history and the hinge of history turns redemption for me, for you, for our children, for all mankind who believe the words of this man. They were astonished at the weight and the authority of this teaching. To better understand this point number one, this recognition of superior religious authority, it's important to remember the 400 year or so backlog that preceded Christ and John the Baptist's ministries on this earth. Alexander the Great died in 323 BC. During this time of political tumult, there had been long centuries where the land the people and the culture of Israel, the Hebrews, had been assailed by a myriad of problems. Conquering empires, apostasy, the lack of prophets. Indeed, the last canonized word came in the book of Malachi, which prophesied one would come. But then there was a long wait of centuries before a true revelatory word of the Lord in the mouth of his, apostles, of his apostles or prophets would hear, would land, would be heard, would land upon the ears of the faithful Jew or the apostate Jew for that matter at this time. Alexander the Great influenced the culture of this area to great degree. Hellenization of the Middle East began to take place, which was a term that historians use to refer to the Greekizing, if you will. The Jews began to lose a lot of their distinctive Hebraic culture and Greek 
methods, forms, language, and traditions began to take its place. Cities were built that exalted man. Colosseums were built in just about every major Jewish city. And as even the Old Testament attests, that when the Messiah would come, changes would take place in the family. So negative changes took place in the family at that time. Children were taken by the state to be educated. And these government-sponsored indoctrination centers, such that fathers' hearts and children's hearts began to be farther and farther removed. For a faithful few that longed and cried out for God's covenant promises to be realized perhaps in their time, if not at some point in the future, this languishing period in between the Testaments must have taken a great toll. Indeed, the historical record shows as much. There were some segments of the Jewish populace that retreated to kind of monasteries. The Quamran community was one who penned the Dead Sea Scrolls. They separated themselves from this Hellenized culture, from the Greek influences, and tried to preserve something of their history. They were compelled to a reclusive and a regrouping behind the walls of their own religious establishments in these Essene communities, tried to hide in a corner and preserve what they thought would be their only grip on hope. Herod rises to the throne during this time, and in spite of his wish to placate the Jews and even his immense project of rebuilding the temple, you know from the testimony of Scripture the scourge that he represented during this time. So all these tumultuous factors, which included wars, uprising, revolt, the total loss in some cases of families and faithfulness, where cities were reconstructed, reconfigured, Land masses were shaped to reflect humanism and the glory of man. During this time, there was a great heaviness that fell across the land. And indeed, it is comparable, as we've mentioned, the Exodus echoes before, of the oppression of Egypt. And interestingly so, it was about the same length of time. That is, for about 400 years, there was a famine for hearing, if you will, the word of the Lord at this time. And then one day, in the ears of a few faithful Jews, perhaps hanging on by their fingernails to scraps of their culture that told them truly through the word of God that a Messiah would come, there came a man, comely in appearance but powerful in word, speaking as out of time and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he was followed immediately on the heels by another who began to demonstrate the power of God in word and in deed that was obviously surpassing the greatest prophets of old such that when his words fell on the ears of the Jewish hearer, they were moved and astonished at his teaching. He was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. During that vast intertestamental period of 400 some years, while the Jews were under a different kind of oppression, there was during that time movements, political, religious, and conservative, that grew up among them to try to preserve something of their culture. And I mentioned Quamran as an example of that. Another example of the Jews' best attempts to preserve their culture and their distinctive Hebraicness, if you will, 
was represented by two sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, these men were looked to and these organizations were looked to to be an authority on the Word and on the old writings and on the truth and on the law. And to the best of their ability and to the best of the people's faith in them, they were seen as the preeminent religious touchstone of that day to preserve and to hopefully to restore and to uh, teach and to inculcate the people in the old ways lest they lose them. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very important to the culture at this time. But indeed, when Jesus came, there was also friction there because standing not clearly, emphatically, and only on the Word of God, but they had manufactured human constructs to preserve this goal. Their means to their end was not always biblical and not always God-honoring. And so during this time, although they represented the Israelites' best obvious and pragmatic hope, they themselves proved faithless because they were standing on the constructs of men to preserve the Word of God. And God is so jealous for His glory that He will not, he will not suffer any competition to His Word. And so Jesus began to clash with the Pharisees. But you can see, in light of that background, how significant this moment was when Jesus was seen by some at least to rival the authority and the influence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus was obviously shown and revealed to this crowd of onlookers as the superior religious authority. People were looking away now in little bits and pieces, little quadrants and segments, in small groups, they were looking away from the Pharisees and Sadducees and looking toward Christ. And there we have a principle that it would behoove us well to pay attention to today. Are there things and constructs that stand on man's means to preserve something of God's Word that have become idols in our eyes? Is there anything that we trust in outside of, in addition to Jesus Christ to preserve this nation, this land, us as a people, Christianity, our hope for the future. Let us, if we find ourselves guilty of that charge, turn away from those constructs and look once again to Christ because He is the superior and indeed the sufficient religious authority if there ever was one. This message that Jesus Christ was preaching, as I told you, was 400 years in the making. And now as Christ steps into history, while these Pharaoh figures have a sway and influence on the people, like the Roman government, like the Pharaoh figure of Herod, and even those among the Pharisees and Sadducees, whether from within the culture of the Hebrews or without, there are echoes of Exodus here. A deliverer has come. A deliverer like Moses. Elijah was prophesied to arrive in Malachi 4.5. Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah. He identifies him with that prophecy for those who have ears to hear. In Exodus 12 verses 40 and 42, all the way back in the old record, we see that moment of Israel's deliverance where 400 years of oppression and that silence where no prophetic voice interrupts the regimen of hard labor and the discouraging, dehabilitating social factors represented 
in Egypt, when that silence is broken by the word of the Lord through Moses, as he intervenes and tells them that a deliverer has come, that Jesus Christ has hope and salvation in them, pictured for them, pictured in the Paschal Lamb, which will be slain in its blood, placed on their doorstep, on their doorposts. And so it was then and is now in the deafening silence of depression and tyranny and despair and slavery, a prophetic voice echoes with deliverance. And it is a powerful moment indeed. Matthew 17 Chapter 17, verse 2, is the Mount of Transfiguration. And who is Jesus identified with there? He's seen pictured in his transfigured form with none other but Moses and Elijah. And there are many similarities between Moses and the office and work of Christ as he begins to declare to the authority structures, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and anyone else who would hold sway over his own, let my people go. And he demonstrates his power and authority answering the question, who says, by casting out demons, by healing the sick, the lame and the dead rise and walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dumb speak, and the uh, famished are fed by the thousands. And so we have Jesus demonstrating his superior authority in these moments It's been a moment 400 years in the making, indeed centuries and millennia in the making. But its significance is powerful when you place it in its historical situation. And so at the central point of Matthew's gospel, Christ has been recognized so far as superior and religious authority. But secondly, and more briefly, he's also been recognized as sovereign over creation. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, we read this account. Matthew 8, 27, begin with 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose And rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying. What sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Even the winds and the sea obey him. And so we find in the testimony of the record. That Jesus was affirmed as sovereign over creation. Over the created order. Indeed, over those elements of the created order that no mere man could have dominion. In this case, it was a storm. Man had been given the dominion, the cultural mandate to go and to subdue the earth. And in his pre-fall state, presumably he had sufficient ability and power to do so. Now that dominion call and charge was not rescinded, but man's ability to do it was hampered and handicapped because of sin. So after sin entered this world, with it came the judgment in the created order and the judgment in the human heart, such that these factors coalesce to create chaotic events in nature that man is 
subject to and cannot control. And also man's own heart, his lack of wisdom, his lack of ability to take dominion over even his own heart has handicapped him. And so man had been a poor steward of the earth. And during these times when a storm would come all through the centuries, all through history, it was painfully obvious in the chaotic events of this created order that this whole, wor- that this whole world, that this whole Indeed, history since Adam's fall had fallen under the effects of sin and its corrupting effects. But now, at this time in history, there was a man who stepped into the situation, who was taking dominion, not just over a garden so that seed could sprout and produce fruit to feed his family, but a man who had dominion over the winds and the sea. And by a word from his mouth spoken, the chaotic storm bowed at his command. Who was this? That was exactly the question that rose to the heart and to the mind of the disciples as they watched these events unfold. What sort of man is this? Now if we read a few verses previous, Jesus had revealed himself in some way by saying, I am the Son of Man. In so many words, verse 18 and following, we read, Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. The scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. We can see how after hearing verse 20 and seeing verse 24. That by increment, incrementally there was a dawning revelation on the disciples. When they heard Jesus refer to himself as the son of man. It likely did not occur to them that when he said that. He included within that term the power to subdue a storm by his spoken word. So what sort of man was this? And what did Jesus mean when he said and referred to himself frequently as the son of man? Well, at least three things in the record of Matthew in the greater context of scripture come to mind. When we hear son of man, we certainly do hear humanity. We hear a testimony of one who was indeed born of a virgin, born of a woman, participating in the real human experience. But when we hear the Son of Man, it is not just limited to that distinctive. The Son of Man also refers to the Son of God who would be born a man in order that He in that state and in His dual nature might suffer the wrath that our sin deserved and be a sufficient substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. The Son of Man would suffer and would die. And because He was the Son of Man, and because He perfectly obeyed the law of God, and because He suffered in Himself and in His incarnate flesh the wrath on the cross that our sin deserved, this Son of Man was the final sacrifice that all the sacrifices of old prefigured and prophesied. He was here. 
And that's what he meant when he said, Son of man, not just born of a woman, though he certainly was, but born of a woman to suffer and die as Son of man and Son of God, and in so doing, make full and satisfactory payment for the sins of the elect. What sort of man is this? The man who referred to himself as the Son of man? Well, not just one born of woman, not just one called to suffer, but also the Son of Man who would declare in His work victory over all of history. Daniel 7 verse 13 and 14 has become a favorite text of mine because of its explanation in this regard. In this picture in Daniel, we see a prophecy of what the Son of Man is and perhaps its fullest and consummate biblical definition. In Matthew 7, after Daniel sees visions of beasts rising, which represents nations, and he sees in his mind's eye, as God has revealed it to him, powers <coughs> and authorities <coughs> excuse me, that rise and then fall. He sees in this course of history in vision form that there will come a time when an ultimate authority will come. He too will have a kingdom, but his kingdom will be distinctly different. As I look, David says, I'm sorry, Daniel says in 7 9, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. And immediately we see in our mind's eye the picture that John, in a post ascension, in a post ascension vision, had of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is pictured as this man man with a head of hair as pure wool, as white. His throne was fiery flames, it says in verse 9. Its wheels were burning fire. And we see Ezekiel's vision as well, where the Ancient of Days is seated on a throne that is moving according to its own independent purposes and will, predestined from before all of time as represented in flaming wheels. And this kingdom knows no limit to its power. Verse 10, we continue. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. These other authorities are demolished in light of this one who is coming, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then notice 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like who? What sort of man? Like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There would come one who would destroy all other authorities who the disciples in their hearing had already attested he had authority, not like anything they had heard before, unprecedented in their ears, not like a scribe, not like a Pharisee, but superior. And this one was preaching and teaching, and what was his theme? A kingdom. And what did he refer to himself as? The Son of Man. 
And in the scope of redemptive history, we can identify this language with the milestones of prophetic truth. And we hear in our ears, coming forward from the pages, not just a suffering servant, but one who would rise from the dead and who would ascend and would present the finished work of His efforts before the Ancient of Days, who would be the Lord and champion of our salvation. And under Him, all authorities in heaven and on earth would be subdued. Even as He said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. We see in the book of Revelation a testimony of that power and of that truth when people from every tribe and tongue and nation worship Him. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that He will rule and He will reign until every last authority, even death itself, is firmly fixed under our conquering Messiah's victorious foot. Praise the Lord. He is sovereign over creation. He is sovereign over the authorities of this world. And He is sovereign over demons. We continue to read in this testimony here and we see that Jesus has declared by His own words He is the Son of Man. We've seen the declaration of the Son of Man in the context of the Word. We've seen the sword of man that the disciples are beginning to understand He is when He calms the winds and the sea. But we also see in the spirit realm that the demons know exactly who He is. We continue to read in verse 28, And when He came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demonic, demon-possessed men met Him. <coughs> Coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of man? What sort of man are you? What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. The demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, let us be sent into this herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. Continue reading two more verses. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw Him, they begged Him to leave their region. In this section, we see that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all creation. And indeed, He is sovereign over the created order. Even the created spiritual beings, the demons themselves, must bow to His authority and confess that He is the Son of God. Though it pains them to the unimaginable degree to do so, they are indeed compelled by His death grip of authority on their very being to confess who He is. We see in the book of Job that there is an audience periodically, if you will, we can probably assume before the Ancient of Days where the evil spirits must present themselves before God's power before they have permission to do anything. And so you see in the testimony here that Jesus Christ is sovereign over creation and the created order. <clears throat> but the last phrase I read to you is perhaps most troubling of all. Upon the recognition of what's going on here, not everybody bowed and submitted to the meaning and the implication of what was being revealed before them, some of them tragically begged Jesus to leave their region. 
They were not ready. They were not ready to face the reality of what this kind of power represented. They wanted to keep a safe distance from what was frightening and unfamiliar to them. They likely, presumably, had no categories in their mind. They had no experience, and thus they did not feel safe around this Jesus, who looked unassuming on the outside. But indeed, when he began to speak and minister, the demons bowed at his command. May our testimony and may our own assent to who Jesus Christ is, may it join the faithful who submit and bow before him. May it be at least better than a demon. It's tragic to see that among the children of men, their own testimony in some cases falls short of the demon's own when they are in the presence of Christ. At this central point of Matthew's gospel, Christ has been recognized as superior in religious authority. And secondly, as we've just covered, sovereign over all creation. And number uh, three, savior of the soul. In the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 8, we'll begin in verse 1, culminate in verse 8, we read this record. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes, here we see the antithesis with scribes and Pharisees. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. They were afraid, they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Jesus not only calmed the storm, not only testified to His superior authority and expounding and declaring the law of God, the constitution of the kingdom, if you will, but Jesus Himself presumed in this case the power to forgive sins. And He indeed retained it in His own flesh and blood that would be sacrificed on account of this man's transgression. This very man, upon whom he laid hands and healed, upon whom he declared, your sins are forgiven, was hid in Christ. And by faith, he looked forward to those moments that would unfold in due course shortly thereafter, where his Savior, who healed him of his sin and his sickness, would be raised on that cross And for those who had ears to hear, this was one, a son of man who had authority over sin itself. This was an offense in the ears. It was blasphemy in the ears who knew better by the law. They didn't know better by the revelation of its fulfillment in Christ. But with what they had to work with in their own understanding, they said, this man must be blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in in your hearts? 
in any in other case, in any other case, with anyone else before or since who has been born, the condemnation of these scribes would be just. If anyone had claimed to be the forgiver of sins and to have that kind of power today or then or ever outside of Christ alone, their condemnation would have been just. One out of billions of billions of billions would hold a claim to that title. And in this case, the scribes were dead wrong because they were speaking to the Son of Man, the Son of God, who had the power to forgive sins. Which is the greater miracle, Jesus asks, to mend a man's physical form or to mend his relationship with Almighty God? There are people who have been miraculously mended by God's providence and sovereign miraculous power to this day and who go on to live another rebellious life. And what is healing? What does it profit a man to have a healthy body and lose his soul? Nothing. Again, I say nothing. What is the greater miracle? A mending of the relationship of the lost soul to a holy God. And this is the message of this miracle. The people understood tangibly the power of this man standing up and walking. But it was a gift to them so that they might make the connection just as tangibly as this man stands on his two feet. So he stands justified before the Almighty God in the flesh of the man who has the power to render him so because he would die. He would die for him. This was indeed a powerful moment. This was a man who had superior religious law-making, law-fulfilling authority. This was a man who had sovereignty over the created order. And this was the one who was savior of the soul. And by greater miracle still, Jesus demonstrated it. And the range of reaction is interesting. How does this miracle and this proclamation affect the hearers? The crowd, this is separate from the scribes now, the commoners who saw it, they had this response again, verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Again I say, one in billions and billions was granted this authority among men. And we ought to today as they were then be afraid lest we not recognize who He is. Today, the concept of Jesus in the minds of any pagan just about that you run into is a popular concept. But the Jesus that they conceive and the Jesus they profess, is it this Jesus here? The Jesus that we imagine, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the Jesus of our experience, the Jesus of the popular sugar-coated, candy-coated messages of this apostate culture. Is that this Jesus? Does the Jesus in our experience make us afraid? Does it rattle us to the core? Does it ever shake us in light of the Scriptures? The power of this man? That he and he alone among billions has this kind of power and authority? If not, let us repent. Because there are times in our worship and in our attestation, in our knowledge of Christ and who He is, where it is right for us to fear. To pause in the fear of God and consider the weight and the authority of this man. Are we afraid anymore? Do we shudder anymore at the thought that all however brief, 
that our sins may not be atoned for or not for God's sovereign grace alone, intervening man alone at this particular moment in history alone on our behalf, we ought to take note of this reaction and we ought to do as they did. Upon the realization of its weight, glorify God for granting such authority to one. That is a faith-filled and appropriate response when we come in contact with the Savior of the soul. Not the Savior of my body so much or the Savior of my plight, the Savior of my finances, the Savior of my joy, the Savior of my experience, or even the Savior of my eternal destiny, but one who has the power to save the soul is one to be feared. And that is a moment upon the realization striking the heart of the believer through the pages of the Word, even as these believers experienced it through Jesus' ministry directly, ought to move us to fear and to glory and to faithful confession. Submission, surrender, and joyful, worshipful service for as many days as He graciously gives us. Number four, singular in history. Halfway through Matthew's gospel, Christ has been recognized as superior in religious authority, sovereign over creation, savior of the soul, and singular in history. In this same chapter, verses 32 through 34, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him, and when the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But again, the Pharisees, by contrasting measure, said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Prior to this moment, this moment where those who had a brief opening into the window of significance had confessed that never had anything like this been seen in Israel before. Previous to that, there was this miracle that had preceded verse 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed Him crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. And they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Prior to this Confession from the crowds of this unprecedented singular moment in their own history. Never has one come with a promise like this, power like this. There had been a healing of blind men who saw before their eyes were opened. Before these eyes were opened to see the significance of Christ, at least two blind men saw before they could see. That is, spiritually, they recognized Christ as the Son of David with their eyes welded shut with the malady of their own blindness. Yet they knew. How did they know? Their eyes had been opened, the eyes of their understanding. They had given spiritual, the most important and significant eyes to see. And they confessed even more than the crowds at this point, have mercy on us, son of David. O one of the messianic lineage, O one who would fulfill the prophecies of old that David would retain, one in his lineage who would reign forever on the throne. O have mercy on us, son of David. Thus we have blind men seen before their eyes are opened through the eyes of the Spirit, 
We have Jesus' power evident in their eyes, indeed, physically being opened. Then we have this demon-oppressed man whose mouth was loose to speak. And now, as the crowd sees this testimony of the perception, of the faculties of people being restored physically, their own faculties are moved to confess nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel before. This is an unprecedented, singular moment in history. This was a significant statement for the Jewish sentiment. Remember, this was a people who looked to the altars of old, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was a people who were given instructions that remain to this day in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God that they were to take and share with their children to remind them of a time when God intervened as lawgiver and wrote with His own finger on stone tablets a revelation of His character to them as a privileged people. That was a singular moment in Jewish history. So this crowd was confessing in these words that greater than Sinai, greater than Elijah, greater than the covenant experience of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, greater than the power of the Red Sea splitting, greater than the fulfillment of God's promises in the promised land and deliverance from their enemies and preservation up to this point and every prophet that preceded him was a man who stands out in all of covenant history as unprecedented. Jesus Christ is here. Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And on Him our future rests. We notice again with tragic irony, the antithesis of the Pharisees. While this crowd was saying, never has anything like this been seen before, the Pharisees on the other side said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And so when God's word is brought to bear, it has a bifurcating, a separating effect. And sometimes even in this life, you see a precursor to the throne of judgment where sheep flock to one side and goats to the other. And a greater revelation and clarity and bold preaching of the true word of Jesus Christ makes the unbeliever angry and makes the believer cry out in joyful submission. And this is the kind of truth that must return to our consciousness and indeed I say to the pulpits of this land again because this funny business of pretending there's this unwashed middle where things get slippery and God lets things slide and Jesus is who we wish he was and want him to be, serves to do nothing but make Pharisees of us all. When Jesus is here to declare, in my blood alone is redemption, in, in myself alone is authority and power, and on my work and my truth alone does your soul hinge. And so we continue Discovering with those in Matthew's gospel that this man is superior in religious authority. He's sovereign over the created order. He's savior of the soul. He's singular in history. But we find another echo of the blind men. We find that he is the son of David, confessed in his many words in chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. In this case, in this case, Jesus is speaking again to the people. He's revealing himself. And there's a testimony from the peop- of the, that rises from the people. Actually, 22 and following are the verses that 
we're looking for here. There's a testimony that rises from the people again. There's the antithesis of the religious class again. And we see coming to our ears a further incremental progressive recognition of Christ. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him again. Verse 22. And he, Christ, healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? All the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And this man casts out demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided itself against itself is laid waste, and no city or house is divided against, its, divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons... Then the kingdom of God has come to you. During this moment, a powerful revelation, we see the crowd attesting to the truth of Christ revealed. Can this be, they ask, the son of David? There's a kingdom reference there, a kingdom perspective that is in view. The son of David is an authority claim to the lineage of David, to the throne of David, where David's son, the Christ, would rise to prominence and rule and reign forever and all eternity. And as the blind man had confessed before, and now the crowds join in unison, we see that there is an awakening of the spiritual eyes to the reality of Christ as the son of David. And this occasion, this kingdom reference, also provided Christ the opportunity to declare as much in his own words. And he gives a time signature for his own kingdom arrival. He says, by this sign you will know the son of David, if you will, has arisen. But if by the Spirit of God, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this crowd knew. They had just seen another demon-oppressed man be delivered in a moment was blind and mute, restored to his faculties by the son of David. And by the Spirit of God, operative in his word and works, everyone who had ears to hear could clearly see that the kingdom of God's Christ had come. It was upon them. And the Spirit of God was evident in the ministry of Christ. And now they were seeing the son of David in action the ruling and reigning authority power, authority and power of Jesus Christ was there before them. And finally, as a testimony of affirmation escalates through the course of these scriptures, we get to our point in the text in Matthew 14, when once again a storm has descended upon the disciples, which provides the occasion of revelation. Verse 28, Matthew 14, And Peter answered him, Lord, If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. 
and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Truly you are the Son of God. And they did this in worship. Let us not forget the significance of this moment. These Jews knew the law of God. You worship the Lord, and Him only shalt thou serve. You shall have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. Worship was reserved for God and God alone. So this testimony in this boat, after Christ had calmed the storm, demonstrated an affirmation of faith in His disciples who saw Him as God and God alone. And in worship they cried out, saying, Truly, You are the Son of God. This moment was significant as we referenced before in Psalm 29. If you knew your Old Testament Scriptures, if you had sung the Psalter growing up, you knew that Yahweh was identified as a voice going out over the waters. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. And that psalm celebrates the authority of Jehovah God alone by saying, He and His voice and His power extend over the seas. And now on this fateful night, this fearful night, when the disciples are fearing for their very lives, they hear a voice echoing over the waters, echoing all the way back from Psalm 29, saying, through Jesus' own words, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And they recognize that voice as the voice of Yahweh. And they worship Him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is a revelatory event. This is revelatory language. And the significance of this worship cannot be overstated. This is a powerful moment in the gospel. I think it's by design. It's right in the center. We see this incremental, this progressive recognition of who is standing before them preaching, who is standing before them working miracles. And at this moment, the disciples cry out in truth and in fullness of revelation, He is the Son of God. But if that weren't enough, let us close with the verses we opened with in Matthew 16, where in summary and restatement, and even more emphatically perhaps, we hear the testimony from Peter's own mouth. Matthew 16, 13, And now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The question from Jesus Christ. And it rings just as true in our ears today as it did then. Just as relevant in the ears of modern man. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Who do you think Jesus Christ is by popular assent and our culture? And they answered him, they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, and notice the narrowing of the question to the subject. He says, But who do you say that I am? Pointedly addressing the human heart. He speaks directly, one-on-one, and calls his own Simon Peter to account. Who do you, Simon Peter, say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Later it says, verse 21, from that time, we see a shift in Jesus' ministry and message. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Before he launches into that explanation in its specific form of the kind of death he must suffer, he revealed himself to his disciple. And his disciple Peter answered, You are Christ, the Son of the living God. As we have examined just briefly in half of this gospel, the range of reaction to Jesus at this time, we can certainly say it was dramatic and stunning. There were tears shed, jaws that dropped. There was worship that was spontaneously offered. There were swords that were risen in offense. There were court cases that were levied. There were people who ran for the hills. There were people that ran to swords. There were sensibilities and venomous hatred that was raised in the hearts of some. There was a wholehearted commitment of absolute surrender to the authority and mercy of Jesus Christ by others. Suffice it to say that Jesus Christ revealed on his own terms, it was such a dramatic situation that you could not ignore it. You either worshipped or you hated, but there was no safe middle ground. And when we see all these responses, they're building on each other, and at this point culminating in 16, 13 through 21 with that clear attestation from Peter's own mouth of who Jesus Christ is. But it reminds us today Now, Jesus' words echoing down the halls of history, what is our response to Jesus Christ? How are we moved by these words that we have read today? Is our response proportional to the truth therein contained? Because His sovereign revelation deserves a life of abandon and unreserved unreserved worship where we cast off restraint in the service of our King, thanking Him for salvation and dedicating our lives to the service of His kingdom. Anything less is not satisfactory. Anything less is sin. And may God grant us repentance if our response to the revelation of Christ has been less than it ought to be. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, We bow our hearts before you today and we confess, every believer in this room confesses with the words of your disciples that you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. I pray the weight of that statement would grow on us even as it grew on your disciples in the Scriptures and that as we read your word, we would do so with an insatiable appetite for what it can communicate to us by way of weight and glory and power and authority and promise, the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above all names and the name before which every other name in heaven and on earth will bow. When you return or when you call us home, May you find the needs of our hearts bowed, our Lord Jesus Christ, in submission and worship 
before you. And if it is the case, we confess as you did that this is the work of the Father revealing it to our hearts. Nothing that we have to bring, only to the cross we cling. You are and forever will be, Lord, our salvation. We glorify and praise your holy name and thank you for this time we've had together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.